الجزيرة بودكاست It was just another night in the small town of East Palestine, Ohio. The rumble of freight trains passing through was a familiar backdrop for the small town's residents. But that all changed on February 3rd, 2023. State of emergency in Ohio after a train derailment and massive fire. Some 2,000 residents ordered to evacuate. A Norfolk Southern train carrying hazardous chemical derailed and caught fire, plunging East Palestine into the center of an environmental disaster. It looked like a bomb went off right down the street from my home. The black smoke that filled the air was sinister. The chemical inferno burned for days, spewing poisonous fumes into the air. Scientists have warned that some of the chemicals could have long-term impacts on residents due to air, water, and soil contamination. For years, railroad employees have warned that changes in the industry were compromising safety for money. So has the railroad industry in the United States weakened safety regulations to prioritize profits? I'm Kevin Hurton, in for Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Residents in East Palestine are furious and are demanding that those who caused this incident be held accountable. They were able to get more details in new records released by the National Transportation Safety Board, or NTSB, in particular on one wheel bearing that led to the derailment. Today, we're talking to Josh Rushing, a senior correspondent for Al Jazeera's Fault Lines, who went to East Palestine seeking answers about an industry that's plagued by lobbyists pushing to weaken regulations. So, Josh, you spent some time in East Palestine. So where is it and what is it like? East Palestine is kind of a classic, small American town. Less than 5,000 people live there. There's a very quaint kind of main street with American flags and antique stores and a local diner. Kind of place you see a lot of uh, Trump signs, actually. It is on the border of Pennsylvania. Everyone I talked to that lived there was kind of a multi-generational family, and that's why they live there. This is their home. It's not like Washington, D.C., where I live and people move here for jobs. You could pick this town up and you could drop it in the middle of Kentucky or Kansas, and I don't think that much would change. It, it is a really classic, small American town. Okay, so because of the derailment is a wheel bearing that overheated. And there's actually some terrific surveillance footage in the documentary. You see the undercarriage of the train glowing and sparking. So how does the crash unfold from there? Now, the official report about what happened won't be out for at least a year. It's done by the National Transportation Safety Board, same organization that would come in and investigate a plane crash. They're very detailed and they take a long time to come out. But we interviewed a lot of people that work on trains. This is a known common problem. The wheel bearings, they give out over time and they have to be found in inspections and uh, they have to be changed out before it reaches this point. One of the interesting things about this is this wheel bearing was overheating miles before East Palestine, Ohio. There are sensors along the track that measured that temperature. And observers have said that other train companies might have stopped that train sooner 
based on those temperatures, but Norfolk Southern, the train operator in this case, didn't. Let's talk about the people that you met while covering the story. Yeah, we met a a number of families and actually interviewed a lot of people. And of course, we interviewed this family who lives near the tracks that said they felt the reverberations from it. Uh, That's how close this crash was to this town. Lonnie Miller grew up in this area. I knew instantly the sounds. I knew that the train derailed and it was it was terrifying, the sounds, because I could hear the impact in the cars one after another. It thumped and it shook and it rattled the windows, but it also had like a an echo. She has spent her entire life there. She's about 200 feet off of the tracks and less than, uh, I would say maybe, but she's about a half mile down from where the derailment happened. They ran outside, they looked down the tracks and just saw massive flames. And they had video of this on their, their cell phones that they showed us. It's not just a house that has now lost all its value and had all of her life savings tied up in it. She was able to buy that house because when her father died, he left her a little bit of money to pay for that house. So the house is paid for. And it, it it's like the last thing her father gave her to, to protect her, to protect her family. It was the last thing he wanted to give his daughter. It is now rendered valueless. And she is stuck. She wants to leave because she doesn't feel safe anywhere in her own home. But she's so economically and emotionally tied to, to that home on that piece of property where she raised her son that I honestly don't know what she's going to do. You also spoke with a team of volunteer firefighters called the Hazardous Material Response Agency, which was dispatched to put out the fire. You spoke to one of them, a guy named Steve Zakelli, who's the chief of the Mahoning County Hazmat. And he's so interesting because he didn't know what exactly, but he knew right away when he got to the scene that something was terribly wrong here. You could smell something and you knew it was a chemical that was involved. And it tickled the back of your throat. There was like seven different chemicals involved in that derailment fire. And they were all flammables and and toxic, you know. But the worst one was the vinyl chloride. This is a guy who's done this for a long time. And he's been to other train derailments and he's been to other house fires. And he said what he used to consider on a scale of one to 10, a 10 on fires, were now maybe a three or four compared to what he saw on that night. He said this was like the gates of hell opening up. He, he, he said it was just two, three stories high of flames all around and that the colors that you could tell it was like something chemical. And, and as he was trying to fight it that night, it, they, they had no idea what chemicals they were being exposed to. In hearings the NTSB held last week, East Palestine Fire Chief Keith Drabik explained the decision to vent and burn hazardous vinyl chloride gas on the derailed train. He said he was, quote, blindsided when Norfolk Southern and its contractors told him he had just 13 minutes to make the call so they could start the procedure before it got dark. The chemicals that were released here are about as gnarly as it gets. Vinyl chloride, long-lasting, potentially deadly. Uh, What did you learn about these chemicals and the consequences for a town like Palestine? Vinyl chloride is a a chemical used in the manufacturing of plastic. It is highly volatile and really dangerous, particularly if it catches on fire, it turns into other chemicals. And the chemicals it turns into are dioxins. And dioxins can be extremely 
toxic. In fact, one of the dioxins it can turn into is one of the most toxic chemicals known. And as the weather shifted and changed, it, it rained down on that entire area. The remnants of this chemical that can last up to a hundred years in the water, mm. the soil, on surfaces. And it, it was done in such a haphazard way. It was done so quickly that no one really knew the full consequences of it, and they haven't really explained that to the residents. So part of this is just an enormous fear of the unknown, because you can't see it. You don't know, like when you're mowing the grass, are you kicking it up? Yeah. Are you putting it into the air? Everything that you have in your home that you've acquired over the last 30 years of your life, and now all at once, you're afraid to touch it. I was afraid to clean a picture of my son that was hanging on the wall, a baby picture. I was afraid to take it off the wall and try to clean it. I am not, I feel I'm not safe there. I just want to leave. At one point I begged my husband, let's just leave. Just put everything into a U-Haul and let's just leave. And we can't because everything that we have isn't invested in that house. <laughs> you know, it's memories and it's money and it's your time and it's your memories with your family and raising your family. So with their community now torn apart, is there any hope for accountability in the wake of this tragedy? That's after the break. Get your news in less than three minutes, three times per day with the Al Jazeera News Updates. Just ask your home device to play the news by Al Jazeera or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We're back with Josh Rushing, a senior correspondent for Al Jazeera's Fault Lines. We're talking about his new documentary about the East Palestine train derailment. So the folks in this town are not going down without a fight. They have banded together and they are demanding accountability from the train's operator, Norfolk Southern. Because while this was an accident, it was a very predictable one. So Josh, a lot of the railroad workers that you spoke with have warned that freight companies are prioritizing profit over safety. At the core of this is a corporate strategy with a almost intentionally dry name, it seems, called Precision Scheduled Railroading, PSR. So what is PSR and why do these workers think it's so dangerous? So Precision Scheduled Railroading is a business philosophy that really took hold in the, the rail industry in America. All six major carriers now use it. And what it's really about is just hyper-efficiency to create profits for investors at all costs. Mm. So it has reduced the workforce to as much as possible, run the trains as long as possible, and keep the trains moving as much as possible, meaning uh, reduce the downtime as much as possible. One of the fears there, of course, is the downtime is when these trains are inspected. And you talked to Scott Wilcox, an engineer who works at Norfolk Southern for nearly two decades. Mm -hmm. And he's seen the effects of PSR up close. It's not just Norfolk Southern. It's all of the Class 1 railroads. It's hyper-efficiency. Do everything you can to reduce the amount of time that, that a rail car sits in a yard. So as soon as it comes into the yard, the clock starts running. And you want that car out of the yard as soon as possible 
definitely within 24 hours. It doesn't leave time for inspections. It doesn't leave time for repairs, anything like that. Carmen, the freight car mechanics who were responsible for making sure the rail car's safety is according to regulations and industry standards, are finding it increasingly difficult to do their job. The bearing that overheated underneath, that's one of the things that carmen inspect. But carmen are being prevented from doing their jobs for a number of reasons. One, there's far less of them because these companies have reduced personnel so drastically. So you have fewer of them doing it. The company has now required them to do their inspections in less than a minute, which every carmen we talked to said is absolutely impossible. This is a carmen that Josh and his team spoke to. He chose to keep his identity anonymous for fear of consequences by his employer. You used to have three, four minutes a car to inspect, and now you're down to 30 seconds aside. You cannot make those drastic changes and it not affect your operation. Reducing your workforce, putting the fear in people that their jobs hang in the balance. And the companies are now stopping the trains off of the car, off of the uh, rail yard and having them inspected before they hit the rail yard. And the reason they do this is the inspections are required by Carmen specifically, unless a Carmen is not available. So the train companies have set up a scenario where a Carmen's not available and the train crew has to do the inspection. Imagine if rather than having a mechanic do the inspection on the plane before you took off, the flight attendant had to step out and do the inspection on the plane. Would you feel comfortable flying? So the railroads have been playing this shell game for a while. You said that this was pretty predictable. Like when the guys got there, they knew this was going to happen eventually, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Each year, you cut a few more corners, you cut a few more workers, and they were kind of getting away with it for a while. And then, actually, Senator J.D. Vance summed up the system pretty nicely. We have allowed the rail industry to socialize the risk of their business while privatizing the rewards. But then East Palestine happens, and the consequences come into full relief. So these corporations push the limits, and now it's up to the regulators and Congress to correct it. Right? That's at least theoretically. There's an important thing to point out here about the Federal Railroad Administration. This oversees the rail industry in America. But the thing is, while it's supposed to be the regulator, it actually just doesn't have the power it needs to do its job. A real quick anecdote to understand that is this scenario where the trains are being parked off the rail yard, so the train crew has to inspect them rather than the carmen. The FRA knows they're doing that. The head of the FRA sent letters to the CEOs of major train companies in America asking them to not take advantage of this loophole and to actually, you know, perform the safety inspections like they're legally mandated to. Didn't tell them to. Didn't fine them for doing it. Just ask them to. That's called regulatory capture, Mm. where the industry that's supposed to be regulated is more powerful than the regulator. So because of East Palestine, though, there was enough attention to try to pass a new Rail Safety Act. Bipartisan measure. But even before it got to the committee that we filmed, uh, Senator Vance said that he, it, in opening statements that the bill had already been changed significantly from when they first presented it to make accommodations for the industry. So I think they realized that the optics of what happened at East Palestine is so devastating that even the railroad industry in America probably can't stop this bill fully from going through. But what they can do is they can make sure that it's teethless. They, they can neuter it down to the point that it won't interrupt business as usual, one, if, if and when it's passed. 
This is a story that's familiar to me, and I know it's familiar to you. We've both done documentaries on Boeing for Al Jazeera. And you see these problems in the airline industry too. But at its core, these are stories about a corporate culture that years ago started valuing shareholders over stakeholders. It's a very common tale of the new economy. And there are two quotes from the doc that I'd like to play, and we can get your thoughts. First is from Congressman Peter DeFazio. Well, if they can run the workers harder, you know, they need fewer workers. That increases profitability, which increases the operating ratio, which makes Wall Street happy, which increases the uh, bonuses that the CEO gets. Uh, Followed by former Norfolk Southern Inspector Rob Mullins. And you don't only have a responsibility to the other people that work there. You got a responsibility to the public. These cars are rolling within feet of houses. Yeah, it's an economic trend in America that the corporations are, are, are really serving their masters who are the investors rather than, you know, anyone else involved. And, and that, that is the case here in, in the train industry, to be sure. What you don't have in America, you, you don't have three-mile-long trains full of highly volatile chemicals that has been rapidly inspected, rolling within feet of homes owned by hedge fund managers or by CEOs. They're rolling through towns like East Palestine, Ohio, and that risk is taken on by the Lonnie Millers of the world. She's the one that's absorbing the risk for all those people who are making so much money off of those railroads that don't live next to those tracks, but want to squeeze these companies down to the point that they're dangerous, but highly, highly profitable. So knowing what you know about this and how this is likely to shake out in Congress and elsewhere, has anything really changed since East Palestine? Maybe I'm cynical after doing this too long, but no, I don't think anything will change at all. I think they they knew that risk. That the value of every home in East Palestine, Ohio, before the train crash was about $145,000. So if you add them all together, the whole town's residential homes are only worth about $380 million. Norfolk Southern knows its customers, those who need to ship, can't go anywhere else. One or two days of the railroads being down would cause supply chain issues that would rattle the global economy. They know that they're pretty much untouchable. They have all the influence in government they need. Their customers are captured within their system, and the economy depends on them. What's going to motivate them to change? And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Khaled Sultan, with Nagin Oliai, Miranda Lynn, Amy Walters, Ashish Malhotra, Sonia Bagat, Chloe K. Lee, David Enders, and me, Kevin Hurton. In from Malika Bilal. Our sound designer is Alex Roldan. Alexandra Locke is the Takes executive producer, and Nay Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. 